Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Falter and welcome to the Talking Blurry podcast, where we review and dissect some of the best and worst movies and TV shows based on, in, and around Ireland to tell you if they are a good representation of Ireland or if you're being fed a load of blarney. My name is Stuart McNamara, and I'm here with my co-host Robert Cross. Uh, I prefer Rob is fine, Stu. But <laughs> hello, everyone out there in radio <laughs> land or podcast <laughs> land. <laughs> what are we doing today, Stu? So, today we're going to review a movie, Rob. So, the movie we're going to take a look at is Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which is a fantasy adventure story from Disney released in 1959. Uh, Darby O'Gill, as he struggles with problems of the natural and supernatural variety. Set somewhere in the early 1900s, we see Darby attempting to get three wishes from the King of the Leprechauns. Darby contends with the trickery of the Leprechauns while also trying to provide for his daughter Katie and stop Michael McBride, played by Sean Connery, from replacing him as groundskeeper of a Lord's Estate. So Rob, what did you think of this movie? Well, well, Sue, um, I liked it, I suppose, is the main impression. It held up quite well for when I watched this as a child, I, I'd have to say. The effects don't look bad. I think the acting is quite good. And it's still scary in parts to, to a certain extent. So I think, yeah, very positive. Yeah, for myself, uh, to start off with, I wasn't expecting it to be a Disney film because it has been quite some time since I've seen this movie. Yeah. But it is. So if anyone out there has Disney+, Plus, not a sponsor, you can uh, watch it right on there. <laughs> other other streaming services <laughs> exist. <laughs> exactly, exactly. First off, I really... Wasn't expecting this movie to be as good as it was. Mm. I thought, oh, we'll get a good one in that we can tear the, the piss out of. It's going to be funny. It's going to be just nonsense. But it was a surprisingly, surprisingly good movie. Yeah, there's a certain kind of timeless thing to it. I think it, you could show this to kids today and it would still be as impactful as it was back in the 60s. Yeah, I think that's a testament to the care that Disney used to put into a lot of their stuff. Fantastic movie. So uh, I suppose we'll get straight into the stars of the movie. So you have Albert Sharp as Darby O'Gill. So what did you really think of Darby in this? Well, I, I thought it was quite a, a good portrayal, like an old Irish fella. Like, you know, he, he even had the look of him that he'd be like a guy down the pub drinking the Guinness in the corner. He'd be telling a few tall tales or even like a hint of maybe that grandfather you'd have that would tell you a few stories at weddings or like a drunken uncle or something. Oh. There's definitely a very Irish kind of older gentleman to him. Oh, definitely. We've all met someone exactly like Darby O'Gill. One thing I wanted to point out, though, Darby's not exactly a common name in Ireland recently, is it? I, I, I don't think I'd, I don't think I know any Darbys personally. Now, uh, I went down to Facebook to see if I could just type in the name Darby. It's more common as a surname. Yes. But uh, funnily enough, the naming statistics on the internet for the US, uh, the name Darby for a boy shot up <laughs> right around 1960. <laughs> so, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, but now it's more common as a girl's name. Yeah, I suppose Darby would be kind of something you'd hear. Like, Yeah, it's clearly unisex at the very least. Yeah. But it was just uh, it was a surprising thing to hear that it just shot up. Like, apparently there was like no one called Darby, and then this movie came out, and then everyone was called Darby. <laughs> It's like you've got all the kids now running around called Daenerys and 
Harry yeah, Potter I suppose it's fair, something. fair point. Yeah, crazy shit they do now. So uh, I must say that the accent was spot on. Well, I mean, he is Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, I mean, it, it was, but it was definitely the right accent. It wasn't really one that you could strictly place, I think, to a particular part of Ireland. I would have said broadly, maybe the West. Yeah, yeah kind definitely of thing. a country, which is a term we'll have yeah, to Yeah, I would have said, I, I, if, I, if you forced me, I would have said Tipperary somewhere. <laughs> but <Barry's> Kerry. <laughs> I kind of get that. I kind of get a bit of Kerry, but I thought there was definitely kind of a... It wasn't stereotypical. He is Irish, I mean, the actor, of course, but it wasn't too stereotypical. He wasn't being too kind of an accent. So I think it was just the right level where, you know, we're watching it saying, yeah, he's Irish. It was a very good accent and the Americans wouldn't struggle to understand him. But at the same time, it wasn't overdoing it. So I think he he, he did that perfect. Yeah. So uh, the next character we have is Katie O'Gale played by Jeanette Monroe. What did you think of her performance? Good. No, I I, I think as well. I, I, I mean, there's... I think all performances are pretty strong in this film. We'll, we'll get to one quite <laughs> in a bit. But um, I thought she played the character quite well. Um, I think she was an English actress, isn't she? Yes. Or what was. I think she's passed away. Yeah, no, I, I think she did an okay Irish accent. It, I wouldn't really be able to place her as it's a bit more nuanced, but I, I, I maybe set a bit, a bit of the South Dublin there somewhere. Uh, but no, I think, I think she, she did quite a good job in acting, and I think not going to, you know, weak female kind of lead almost, or, you know, well, too much the damsel in distress, but I, I think it, not, it wasn't no, I, I, don't, I don't think she really plays a damsel in distress. I mean, you know, she's, she's clearly taking complete control with the uh, Michael McBride situation, where she's the one kind of yeah. pushing him to to get together in, in that sense. So uh, definitely the hot and cold Irish lass that you still get nowadays, so it's nice to know that nothing has changed with Irish women in 100 years. There, there was something I, I think I actually did realise when I was re-watching a couple of clips. It was, there's an Irish song, and I can't remember the name of the song, but I, I know it, and it goes, Johnny, get up from the fire, get up, sent in the cold. See, it's Mr. McGuire. I was thinking, is it Mr. McBride? There's another version of it, and it's he's trying to court your sister, Kate. So I, I just thought maybe that was where the, the names came from from that song, but maybe, maybe possibly. Not. But it was just something that kind of struck in my head there when I was rewatching it. So. Yeah. But Katie's a very good character. I mean, her big role there is being kind of the caring daughter to Darby, considering that her mother's passed away, which wouldn't have been that uncommon back in uh, in Ireland in, in those times. And so she plays that kind of almost motherly daughter. Very yeah. well. It's a kind of a trope you see in a more modern films now in America where like you get the child that's like very grown up. It's like, oh yeah. dad, you gotta get your life together even though like they're seven. It's like, oh, who's 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 raising who kind of a thing. But I think this sort of does that a lot better where it's not grating or too annoying. It's like she's has a wonderful equality, I definitely think, as well. But at the same... Like I kind of said earlier, she's not shown as being a weak female character. She's shown as being a strong enough female character. I think comes across quite well and quite likable, I would have thought. Definitely. So then we have the king of the leprechauns himself, Brian Connors. <laughs> played by Jimmy O'D. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, when I'm sorry, when the... When the, when the <laughs> It's all right, Rob. We can cut this out, at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, like, when he was cast as the King of the Leprechauns in a film called Darby Gill and Little People, he could have really gone to town in this. But I think he went more paddy, paddied it up more than Albert Sharp did playing Darby. But I don't think he went off the cliff into, like, you know... Farce, almost. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll it's a very, fi- it's a very fine line. But I think he did do a good job. I mean, because he's playing like a, a leprechaun with the crown and the big 
ginger beard and red hair so of course he's going to you know really ham it up a bit but I didn't think it was so out of there that it took you out of the story a little bit I, I think he did do a good job of it and I think it was he was very endearing I would have said it was he was certainly a likable character and yeah good job I would have said yeah one thing that I actually thought when uh, when I was thinking back over it is that this might have been the impetus for the actual leprechaun wearing a little green suit with the, the chin strap beard and yeah. hat, because I was looking around and I couldn't really find much of a leprechaun pre that in terms of the the obvious look that we all know when we someone says the word leprechaun. So it might have actually entirely been based off of Brian Connors from Darby O'Gill. I, I wouldn't be shocked by that at all. I think he, it, it's definitely, if you think of a leprechaun in your head and then you looked at him in the film, you definitely say that's, yeah, that's exactly right. So it was the tail wagging the dog kind of thing which came first, but I think it definitely is, it's a good portrayal of what you would think a leprechaun is, yeah. certainly. I think and he it, plays a great drunk. I don't know how an Irish man like that <laughs> would ever know how to play a drunk, but he, he, he plays drunk. Quite, quite well. It's a skill we learn in, in, uh, in, in school and college, too. <laughs> right. Then on to the most famous of all the cast members, Sean Connery as Michael McBride. Yeah. I, well, I think we, we can't really talk about his performance without getting at the accent, which I, I would have said, Stu, was an East Dublin accent. You know, How East Rob? Well, you know, you, you go out there to um, probably up about Cabra, and you keep going east out to the bay, and you keep going there until you see the Isle of Man, and keep going and it kind of start going north a bit right to the hit about Glasgow I would have thought so that level of East Dublin I don't think there was really any attempt at an Irish accent there <laughs> well there was a, a twang there was a twang there was but a I mean, twang that was about as much as he could do I mean we all know Sean Connery he doesn't do accents. I think it's, if you contrast it with his a much later film he did where he's playing an Irish character as well in The Untouchables where he's playing an Irish cop Detective Malone you know, an Irish-American cop in uh, Chicago. Yeah, he, he kind of does the same thing where it's basically just Sean Connery doing his accent, but oh, trying to put in a bit of an Irish twang there. And it's interesting that his interpretation hasn't changed in about 30 years between these two films. But yeah, yeah but I mean, it's a Sean Connery. You kind of know what you're getting at that point. However, when we lampoon him for his accent, pretty good at singing. The songs that they had in that movie actually kind of got stuck in my head for a while afterwards. It's surprisingly good, actually. I mean, I don't think you'd, you'd look at John Connery and think, ah, this, this man is a great singer. Yeah, but he has some pipes on him. I'd say he does a good job. I, 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 I can't really think off the top of my head another film where he sings. He certainly doesn't sing as James Bond, to, yeah. to my knowledge. But, uh, no. You don't remember the, uh, the musical the movie? <laughs> <laughs> oh good I heard this one is gold and it's, it's his, his favourite's finger yeah <laughs> oh god don't give them ideas Rob I mean it's kind of hard not to see him as Bond now but at the time it would have been a lot easier considering this was the role that got him James Bond yeah I mean, you can kind of see a little bit of the charm in it I think yeah. definitely with, with Katie and some of the scenes in the pub as well he's got that kind of James Bond kind of air about him just the way maybe he kind of walks and kind of the charm he can just put on you can definitely see how we, you know, Dr. No coming out about three years later. It's not a million miles off in that evolution. Yeah, so one scenario that uh, that I thought of during the week that I'd like to put to you is imagine the guy who's there looking for his James Bond and he sees Darby O'Gill and he fits the characters from James Bond into that movie. Okay. So obviously, Michael McBride, James Bond. Yeah. Then we have Katie as clearly either Moneypenny or a Bond girl. Okay. Darby has to be Q. Fair enough. 
And then Pony Suguru would then have to be Dr. No or whatever generic villain. Would Darby not be M, like, giving him the mission? And then you could have the King of the Fairies as... Sorry, the King of Leprechauns, rather, as, like, Hugh then giving him, like, instead yeah, of a gadget, yeah. like, a magical thing? I suppose that makes sense. Yes, yeah, so you can see how, like, weirdly... Yeah. There is a... There, <laughs> you could make... Instead, in, you know, it's just like when Darby gets into the coach, um, at, you know, when after the Banshee comes. Yeah. Like, it could just be, like, then it just starts... Um, <laughs> just, like... The DB5 and Goldfinger, or the gadgets just start coming. <laughs> yeah, like a coach chase. So, if anyone listening wants to re edit Darby Ogan into a Bond movie, you have our full endorsement. Uh, you probably have to ask Disney as well, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> fair use, Rob. It'll be fair use. Fair use. <laughs> I suppose then we'll go on to our highlights from the movie itself, because it had some great scenes in it, and uh, there's really a lot to talk about here. What were some of your best scenes? Well, I think the thing that stood out to me the most, um, definitely before I watched this again, the bit that I remember most vividly from being a child is the Banshee scene because that terrified me as a child and it still hold, I don't, it doesn't scare me as much now but it still looks good for a film that was made in 1959 with no CGI it still looks good and you can still that would still terrify kids today and I think maybe the reason why it scares me more is because you know it's like an Irish mythical creature that yeah yeah we've all heard of we've all heard of the Banshee and you know the same thing where I live there's supposed to be the Banshee in the field down the road so watching that film and seeing a banshee is like oh that terrifies me and then we thought oh there's a banshee on the road that's what it looks like and that's what it does like well I'm not sleeping tonight yeah I mean if you're an American you're thousands of miles away from the nearest banshee but we're living right here so uh, we're a little closer yeah so that that definitely is the thing that stuck to me and even just the I actually think it's like probably the highlight of the acting in the film is when Darby does get go into the coach yeah the coach to Bower yeah yeah and you you can really just see the the emotion on his face I think that is actually a very powerful scene oh yeah I mean it's quite sad it is quite sad but I think it's just very well done and I, I think it you know, you got to just give props to Disney for doing something, you know, ethnic, I suppose, as they would have said at the yeah, time. Yeah, Something outside of... Um, and having it go quite dark as well. Yeah. Considering uh, Disney's usual fare of movies don't uh, don't tend to get that sad and upsetting. <laughs> Seeing a man literally walking into a death coach. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, um, it is definitely dark, like you said. I mean, but there are dark bits in Disney films from that time, even like yeah. some like Snow White or Cinderella. There's Cinderella where the witch gets killed is... Um, stepmother yes is, is pretty um, is pretty brutal but yeah I don't think it goes too dark at the same time now, this film is very good at treading the needle walking a fine line it never goes yeah it's still good for all ages yeah, really it, 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 never, it never goes too way too scary or way too paddy whackery it, it always yeah. does things just one or two right. things that I would point out later on yes but for the most part <laughs> it did a good job um, I also I also did like the Sean Connery scenes where he's just in the pub I think Kind of going to what you were saying earlier about him being James Bond cast from this, you can definitely see that the charm, like I was saying earlier, is there when he's dealing with Katie, but just, he seems kind of at ease there. Yeah, he's kind of in control of the situation. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to exactly say, but you kind of feel like you'd meet someone like him, like like Darby and Michael. You'd meet someone like the two of them in any yeah. pub, and not the, the kind of confident young fella who was very much, you know, grand head on him, you know, not not, not a bother on him. And then Darby, like, telling all the tall tales. I think it's it gives a certain sense of realism to me. I can definitely you can relate to it quite well. Yeah. I think my favourite scene is probably the uh, the Puccine drinking scene. <laughs> of course. Which it just, <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful. I mean, he's just there that the best part is the horse which if you didn't catch it is named Cleopatra which is the strangest name I yeah I didn't quite get that I think it's because it's uh, Lord Fitzgerald's horse so maybe he would have known 
who Cleopatra was, but I, I mean, I, not to disparage my own country, but I don't think anyone from the bowels of Kerry a hundred years ago knew much about Egypt beyond it existed, if I, even that. So <laughs> Yeah, I don't really know, but yeah, maybe it's an in-joke. Maybe. It was just an odd uh, moment, but in the Puccines scene, for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, although you should after this, uh, Darby is trying to, to get uh, Brian Connors, the King of the Leprechauns, drunk, so that he'll stay with him until morning, and when it's morning, he won't be able to use his powers anymore, and he won't be able to escape, so that Darby can then get his wishes. And so he brings down a big jug of Puccine, and uh, he offers a glass to Brian Connors, who, of course, happily accepts the way any good Irish person would, and uh, Darby, pretending to drink himself, pouring it all back into the jug, uh, continues to get him drunk, while also they start a drinking song that is basically like almost a rhyming game between each other. It's not a, it's not an actual song. You just kind of make up uh, a rhyming sentence, and then the other person has to kind of rhyme along with it. Kind, kind of like an early, like, uh, eight-mile kind of rap diss track thing, almost. Yes. Yeah. Darby O'Gill, earliest rapper in history. He's <laughs> <laughs> so like top ten rappers Eminem is afraid to diss. It is, I do know, as a poet, um, I do know a little bit about you know, the evolution of Irish poetry, but there was a thing in Scotland in particular which was kind of like that. I think it was called flirting or some, or flitting, where you'd basically meet up with another guy on top of a hill and you would basically do poetry at each other insulting each other until one of the other guys says, okay, you win, let's go get drunk. <laughs> so I, I think, I, I think it may, it, there might be some inspiration from that in Irish culture, but that's, that was the original kind of rap. We kind of just skipped the whole poetry part and went right to the drinking part. <laughs> so uh, one of my other favourite parts uh, was actually just the, the pub itself being kind of really central to meeting people, which is how it is in Ireland, especially in rural communities where you just have to go to the pub, everyone's there. I mean, even the priest comes in at one point. Absolutely. And I, I think it's some, you know, not to overstate it, but the pub is very much the centre of an Irish community because unlike in a lot of places, it's not just a pub. Yeah. It's, it's also like an undertaker's uh, funeral home. Post office. A post shop. office, a shop. You know, it, the pub is literally the centre of the community because it's about five different things. So I think... It, it isn't like a stereotype in Ireland to have it, a load of scenes set in the pub. That's just realistic. Yeah, and I mean, there are some pubs who, which currently look quite similar to that pub. I mean, I would yeah. say Kilkee has one or two. Uh, that Murphy's, are I think, are the Greyhound down there for. Yeah, they still have that, not, that not really. Sponsors. <laughs> they still have that really old aesthetic to them that looks quite like the pub in a movie from '59. Yeah, I think some haven't changed since '59 yeah. too. <laughs> Not, not a bad thing, not a bad thing. Now, the big highlight of this movie, I think, is actually the special effects that they have. Because for a movie that was made, whatever, 50-odd years ago, they're fantastic. I mean, the the forced perspective that they use for the leprechaun, they really look small in a similar way to, like, The Lord of the Rings made the Hobbits look small. Yeah. But, like, so long ago that it's almost unfathomable that they were able to be that clever. I suppose it, it kind of just goes into it that you don't need to overcomplicate something by doing, like, CGI or anything like mm. very simple practical effects can work and I mean like we were talking a bit about Bond earlier the kind of comparisons here that's what made the Bond films stand out even till today because they do practical effects they do like miniatures for like explosions and things like that or like plane chases or whatever and it still work- looks good because they know how to shoot it and it's yeah. the same thing here something as simple as just doing a bit of different perspective using a different camera lens lighting whatever can make something be very effective like I think the Banshee was done with like double exposure on the film yeah yeah I have a bit about that yeah. around yeah, I mean, it, it was really great. There was only uh, one little bit that really uh, brought it down was the lantern. So there are certain scenes at night and clearly they're filming it on a soundstage. So yeah. can't really have a fire. 
So what they have is they have Darby holding this lantern with maybe a little bulb in it, but it's not bright enough to actually see by. So I noticed that they have a spotlight pointing at the lantern and moving with him, kind of not well, but enough that if you're not paying attention and you're a child, you might not notice. But then at one point, he actually leans through a door with the lantern, and it takes an extra couple of seconds for the spotlight to turn off. So it's obvious, and it was funny. Didn't really take me out of it too much, but I thought it was just a hilarious kind of contrast to the great force perspective and Mm. special effects they're doing there, and then they have a spotlight that they can't turn off in time. Yeah, I didn't notice this at all when I rewatched this film until you pointed it out to me. And then I watched the eclipse, and now I was just like, oh, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> One scene cannot be unseen, I think. It's quite, I think it's quite noticeable where he's running up to Katie when the Banshee is around. It just seems to be going yeah. all over the place, I yeah. think, because there's extra film. I, I noticed it quite a lot there. Yeah. So the next big thing to talk about it, then, is this setting. So as I said, this was uh, set in a town in Kerry, and uh, I think that the actual town itself looked great. Yeah, I think, it, like, it, it, obviously this is, like, the early kind of 1900s-ish yeah. is kind of what we're talking about, but a lot of Irish towns would still have a certain core of them that would be those kind of old buildings, so... Yeah, you have, like, the <laughs> church there, the yep. pub, the shop, post office, all of that would be there, and then I think there was, like, some kind of monument in the middle, a religious monument. Yes. And, uh, the <clears> only, not, not too not too out of, yeah. uh, out of the, the I mean, there. the only things that would be different is you'd probably have a tarmac road and a spar. Yeah, probably. Uh, probably bookies as well. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, as they all need now. Even the, the shop, I thought, was very well done. It had, there was a, also a post office as well. And then you had the elderly people, or the elderly woman, I should say, being a bit of a busybody, as uh, you'd expect them to be reading people's letters inside. Yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, I, I think the setting definitely is, felt like an Irish little village. Definitely. Um, I think, you know, you, you could definitely go to some places down in Kerry now or a lot of other parts of the country and it wouldn't exactly be out of uh, whack there at all. Yeah. One thing that I thought was odd though and it might just be my own lack of knowledge but obviously the leprechauns live in a dilapidated castle on the hill or mountain not Nishiga, which doesn't exist but um, I don't know of any castles built on hills in Ireland. Not not to the extent that they are in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's um, I mean, you know, the Hill of Tower obviously where yeah. the Vikings but that wasn't really a castle. I mean obviously the main thing I thought of was really kind of Edinburgh Castle where it was on the hill above the city. Yeah. I couldn't really think of a proper Irish comparison. Once again we're going very North Dublin there. We're going yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, not really an Irish thing but maybe there is and maybe we're just incorrect about that. Who knows? Another big thing that uh, is subtle and a lot of people who aren't Irish might know about is they discuss cutting turf. Yeah. Which I think we should explain to people if you want to... Well, you know, uh, what turf or is like peat maybe people would call it. Yeah. Um, you go down to like a bog, which is like an old pond that's had like loads of trees and dead things in it. And you cut turf out of it with a special kind of shovel. I can't remember the name of it. And yeah, it, 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 it's kind of like um, a block of tobacco or something it looks like. Almost. Yes. I, that is the best I can describe. It's basically a, a block of mud, except it burns when you put it in a fire. And it has a very strong distinctive smell. Yeah. Uh, if any people are fans of, you know, Lagavulin whiskey or anything like that, they use peat, which is basically turf to smoke it. Yeah. So that, if you ever smelled that kind of smoky scotch smell, that's what it smells like. So there's a lot of it here and people are still, people still go out in the evenings to, or the days to cut turf uh, to burn over the winter. So it, yeah. it's still a common tradition uh, just for anyone who didn't know. Another great point is uh, their use of the Irish language. Yes. Which I was surprised by but was actually quite lovely to hear. You know, uh, obviously, for counting and that, and then opening the uh, opening the magical rock wall to their castle. It's nice to hear it in film. Yeah, definitely. And it, 
in that movie, it made it kind of a magical thing, which I thought was nice. Coming from Ireland, you're uh, basically force-fed Irish from a young age, and uh, you don't always appreciate it. But seeing it used in that way, where it has that magical quality to it, uh, made it a little bit nicer. I think it, it does sort of work, and I think with the, particularly the mythology in the film and everything else, having Irish is almost like a magical language of fairies and leprechauns yeah. and everything else does kind of lend to it quite well. I think it's a, it is a beautiful language, and I think it does work quite well in this, in this kind of context. Yeah. And uh, the last bit there for... It also weren't bad at speaking the Irish, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty, speak. pretty good job. Uh, one other thing that I found quite funny was they're uh, referencing the Spanish Armada, yeah. With the leprechauns have a cannon and I think it was a some musical instrument as well. Yes. That uh, they got from a Spanish Armada, which actually is a reference to something that did happen in Ireland. It sure it is. Where in uh, 1588, the Spanish Armada sank off the coast of Ireland during stormy weather. So it's just using our actual history to make this beautiful little story just kind of broadened. Yeah. Now, of course, of course that was in off Clare. Yeah. Outside uh, the town of Spanish Point. Uh, conveniently, they named it, the. You know, they sunk outside of Spanish Point. That yeah, was... it's weird that the, it was called Spanish Point, yeah. and then Spanish ships sank there. Don't know why. Yeah. Can't say. Clear, clearly, uh, Queen Elizabeth was having a bit of a laugh. <laughs> she knew something was coming. She knew something was coming. <laughs> then I suppose we should talk really about the, the folklore. The big one, obviously, is the leprechauns themselves, which I thought were pretty accurate to the legends. I mean, you get the, the prankster side, the tricksters, and obviously the big pot of gold. Which is all you really want out of a leprechaun. Uh, what did you think yourself? Yeah, I, th- I think because I we kind of said earlier, it's the stereotypical kind of view of a leprechaun is the king with the beard and everything else. And I think definitely, like you think of a leprechaun as like a little trickster who's like speaks in rhymes almost and uh, is like trying to trick you out of something because they're little tricksters or uh, something like that. And I think it comes across that way. They're not really necessarily evil. They're scheming, yeah. but they're kind of like chaotic. They're in it for themselves. They, yeah, yeah. They, they, they do what they want, and sometimes <laughs> that might be bad for you. I mean, the the one thing that a lot of media gets wrong now is that they're basically the same as every other fairy, except they're cobblers. They make shoes. Yep. And uh, that's mostly down to their own love of dance. So clearly they're dancing so much that they need to rebuild their shoes. And so they do a lot of shoe building. building. Uh, shoe making. <laughs> shoe building. Have <laughs> <laughs> you ever been to shoe now? For the woman who lived in a shoe, you have to build that one, surely. You can't yeah. cobble that one together. It's like the four Yorkshiremen sketch used to live in a but, shoe uh, in the middle of the road. <laughs> yeah, so they grant wishes, kind of like a genie, where they can kind of they can grant you the wish and screw you over. And I actually found a, a little story about it, where a man was out cutting turf. Mm-hmm. He caught a leprechaun, and he wished for a crock of gold. And so the leprechaun materialized the crock of gold, but it was stuck in the ground. So there's a tree next to him, he was kind of in a wooded area. And so the leprechaun disappeared off anyway. And so your man decided that he was going to tie his red scarf around the tree because the, the crock of gold was too heavy for him to lift. So uh, he'd put a little marker there, he'd run home, get a shovel and a, another friend, come back and take it out. And when he came back, every tree in the forest had a red scarf wrapped around it. <laughs> so he had no idea where the crock of gold was. And that's the kind of trickery that yeah. Leprechaun tends to get up to. Uh, the next one then is the Banshee, which as you said, you uh, oh, had a fear of. <laughs> vividly. I, I think it's it's a, certainly a strong thing in Irish folklore. Like, as I was saying earlier, it's like, oh, there's one in the field down the road. And you, you would kind of get that across the country yeah. where there's like Banshees all over the spot. There's even a... <laughs> my favourite story is there's a tree on the road between Limerick and Galloway and the motorway and they had to bend the motorway around the tree because it was a fairy tree and there was a banshee living in it. Oh, right. I didn't know it was a banshee specifically. Yeah, I mean, they do it very well. I mean, the banshee is there to warn the living. 
uh, of their coming death and prepare them. So she's not really there to murder anyone herself. She just kind of warns that the, the coach de Bauer is actually coming. She is the yeah. sign of it. It's very accurate that they had the comb, which is something that's common in the the narrative of the Banshees. And then there tended to be ghosts of women who died in terrible circumstances or who did terrible things in their lives. So they're kind of cursed to become a Banshee in that sense, warning yeah. other people of their coming doom. After that, then we have Puka, which actually takes the is a shape-shifting trickster. So it takes the form of the horse Cleopatra. Don't know why it's called Cleopatra still. And tricks Darby O'Gill, knocking him into the Leprechaun's kingdom. I thought it was interesting because it's not, it's like one of the kind of creatures in our mythology you don't see as much. And particularly because I always thought Puka meant ghost in Irish. I, did, yeah. I, I, I didn't really think it was a shapeshifter, but it's good to kind of see lesser known things in our mythology on screen like that because it, there is a lot richer than people realize. It's not just leprechauns and banshees and like men speaking in verse. There's a lot more to it. Kind of part of the problem with the Puka is that they don't have a, a set form. They are always changing their shape mm-hmm. and there isn't a lot of information on them that I could find anyway. So it's kind of, it's harder to write it into a narrative with so little to go on. Uh, the last thing then is the Coach de Bauer, or the Coach de Bauer, which is um, the death coach that comes to take first Katie, then Darby, then eventually Brian Connors uh, to the afterlife. That was done really well. Another thing that I didn't really know about until I had to look it up for this I hadn't heard much, but it's it's a, a very important thing in old Irish folklore. So it was really good to see another thing that people nowadays don't know about being brought into it. Yeah, I, I thought it was, I think, as I said earlier, it was quite a powerful scene seeing Darby in there kind of crying, looking out at his house going away with the rain coming yeah. down. But yeah, I mean, I've heard about this, obviously, growing up. It's like if you go in the road, you get hit by a van, the coach will come and take you away. Yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind of a thing like that. So you get killed playing on the road. Right. Then we get into some trivia. I think one of the the things that really stood to the movie is that Disney spent three months, Walt Disney himself, I should say, spent three months studying folklore for the movie. Uh, a lot of it with Ashana Key, which is a, an Irish uh, storyteller, kind of keeper of the old stories. Oral tradition, I think yeah. you could say. Which is and so, fun like, as it sounds. That really comes through in the movie in how, how well it's done and how much care was brought in to making everything work really well. You could definitely half arse it and they didn't. I, I, that's what I'd say. They, even like including things like the Pook and the Coach the Bower. Yeah. It's good. I mean, they, they obviously looked into this and put it into a decent structure when they were yeah. making it. There is care and tension here, and I think it did seem like it was a Disney fashion project. To go along with that, um, to give the illusion that the leprechauns were real, they weren't actually given a screen credit as leprechauns in the movie. Okay. If you watch the credits at the end. Hmm. So at the start, there there is the, the title screen that says, thank you to Brian Connors and the leprechauns for being in the movie. And at the end, they're not called leprechauns. So you have uh, uh, Jimmy O'Dea or whoever yeah, being... Uh, they're they're credited, but they're not credited as Brian Connors. So they're in the movie, but they're not to give the illusion oh, that they're really leprechauns. that they're really leprechauns. Oh, I, I actually, to go on with that, they made an episode of the Magical World of Disney where Walt Disney actually travels to Ireland, meets up with Darby O'Gill. Okay. Darby brings him to Brian Connors, and Walt Disney asks him to be in the movie in an episode for television. That's how. That's how. Wow. Much he wanted to make this illusion that the leprechauns were real. I, I thought you were going to say, and then you see Walt Disney himself personally catching the leprechaun <laughs> in, in a big net. That would be something else, but unfortunately not for this one. But it, well, it just, we, as, as, but it's a shame you just didn't know the leprechaun museum is in Dublin now. That would have saved him a lot of time. Oh yeah, definitely. Great museum there. Uh, so on a bit of a sadder note on trivia, Sean Connery is the only living member of the cast. Yeah, who would have thought? Well, I mean, Darby was not yeah, exactly I mean, a young yeah. man. A lot of the this. people in it were kind of old, but it's still... 
Kind of sad to know that he's the only one left. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll be looking at a sequel, Stu, with the well, cast. I had that idea, actually. Oh, I was no. going to bring it up at the end, but now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> oh, no. Since Disney are kind of in the uh, the remake sequel mode at the minute, what if they did either a sequel to Darby O'Gill or a remake with Sean Connery as Darby? Or as Michael McBride, if it was a sequel, but old. Have like the Sean Connery effectively playing the Darby role, but reprising Michael. Yeah, in, yeah, if it was a remake, it would still be Darby, but if it was a well, sequel. Well, I don't think he acts anymore, but if it was, you could give him a boatload of money, he'd probably do it. But Yeah, uh, it's Disney. They just bring a truck to his I house think... like, do you want a second truck of money? <laughs> Money <laughs> up to my house. I'm that big. <laughs> I think if you got the casting right, I, I would have thought you you would want an Irish actors. Maybe do like Michael Fassbender's Irish. You could have him doing it. True. Well, I think it, it, I mean, there's some good people yeah, to do it. It would be nice to have Sean Connery reprising a role. But, yeah. you know, if it was a sequel and Michael kind of grew up to become a very Darby-esque character, still yeah. telling the stories of the leprechauns. And I mean, with what they have with technology now, you could make a really convincing Brian Connors without Jimmy O'D being alive to do it. I, I actually just thought of something. You could totally have, like, Pierce Brosnan just play, like, Michael's son. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and just as, like, a subtle little... As, as, okay, little, as, mean, a, subtle, as a subtle little nod and a wink to James Bond. <laughs> that's, uh, that's something, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> Pierce Brosnan is an Irish actor. I think he, he's from Navin. That, I suppose it could work, yeah. yeah. Uh, the last bit of trivia, then, is the director. Did you get a chance to catch who the director was? Um, no. <laughs> the director for this is Robert Stevenson. Who, Robert Louis Stevenson. <laughs> no, not Robert Louis Stevenson. So Robert Louis, no, Robert Stevenson also directed Mary Poppins. Oh, you can kind of see there's a similar kind of vibe. To yeah, that. there's something fantastic in both of those movies, and it's clearly that director who knows what he's doing, mixed with Walt Disney being a crazy person who does a lot of work. Yeah, I think you can definitely see he kind of carried that benevolent kind of magical person into... Yeah, into clearly, yeah he, he knows what he's doing with that kind of that mystical element, but it's not overpowered magic. I, I will say, I think, you know, you can say Sean Connery's accent is bad in this film, but compared to Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent, it happens, <laughs> that's, you know, he gives that man, give, give Connery the Oscar, quite frankly. Right, so then I suppose we'll give our ratings for the movie as a whole. So Rob, is it a crock of gold or a crock of shite? Uh, I would say Crock of Gold. It was a terribly enjoyable film. It's held up very well. It still evokes strong memories of one particular scene. Um, the acting is pretty much good all around. It's, I would say, overall, it's a happy film. Yeah, I definitely. guess, towards the end. I, I liked it. Yeah, what more can I say? Watch this film. It's a fantastic, fantastic Disney film. Definitely. I would also give it a Crock of Gold, with the caveat that there might be one chocolate Shitty coin in there, <laughs> being that when Darby actually gets the chance to make his three wishes, one of them is for a good crop of potatoes, which is about the one really big bit of paddywhackery I could find in the movie. I think it... I'm willing to let that fly, because if he was living down in that kind of part of Kerry at that time, he definitely would have heard the stories of the famine from his parents, or not have seen them when he was very young. So I, 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 I'm willing to kind of give him a pass on that one. Yeah, it, it's just the idea that he's getting... He's wishing for a crock of, crock of gold, and then also a crop of potatoes, when the crock of gold could probably buy every potato in Ireland. Yes, money can be exchanged for, for goods and services. <laughs> so it's just, a, it's just a very odd thing for them to put in when they were so well on everything else. But uh, I suppose, what can you do? Yeah. So then I suppose if anyone else... 
out there listening has their own review of the movie for us and their own rating, they can send it in to us. We actually have an email address, which I will give at the end of the show, and a Twitter. Uh, so that's exciting. I guess that's the end of the show. It sure is. Uh, thanks for joining us on, on our little quest here. Uh, I'm sure we'll be back with something even greater. I mean, because it's not like Disney would make a re- new film recently about involving Ireland. I'm sure if they did, it must be fantastic. Oh, yeah. They do a lot of good stuff for us nowadays. <laughs> if you'd like to, to review the show on your podcast app of choice, go right ahead. If there's some kind of subscription that you can do for us as well, uh, tell a friend. And you can contact us at Twitter at TalkingBlarneyPod and email is TalkingBlarneyPod at gmail.com. And we're very up for suggestions for any media you'd like. Yeah, send us in anything. Film, TV, probably, I don't know, comic books. And uh, that's goodbye for me. And goodbye for me. Bye.